This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Over the past century, nominal wealth has grown at tremendous rates, and as recently as 2020, total global assets under management aggregates to more than $100 trillion. As finance, investing, and estate planning continue to matter to more and more individuals, those charged with advising and administering that advice have continued to grow in number and refine their expertise. That expertise manifested in the founding of the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, or CFP Board, in 1985. The CFP Board administers the Certified Financial Planner, or CFP credential, to almost 95,000 professionals today. The acquisition of the credential is rigorous, requiring the four E's, education, experience, examination, and ethics, and it has become the standard for professionals working in the financial planning and wealth management fields. The CFP Board also requires its certificates to maintain strict codes of conduct, including the CFP Board Standards of Professional Conduct, a Code of Ethics and Professional Responsibility, Financial Practice Standards, and Candidate Fitness Standards. Noting the importance of the profession and the financial implications of more than 100 trillion AUM, the CFP Board upholds those standards through its Division of Enforcement. With so much at stake, we're glad to be joined by Tom Sporkin, Managing Director of Enforcement at CFP Board, to understand more about his role and the issue facing CFP credential holders today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. We got another great episode lined up. I think you did a, an awesome job of sort of teeing up why this matters, why, why we're talking about it today. I think it's just amazing when I think about you know, the CFP certification. It really has become the standard in mm -hmm. the industry. I think it's something that's, I think, much more widely known maybe than it was even just a few years ago. I think we've seen some commercials out there on that's television. Right. So it's, it's something that people certainly strive for. I think there's like 93,000 CFP professionals now, That's right. which is a lot. <laughs> so an important thing for us to talk about. I'm also excited because we've got an awesome guest who's an old friend. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm happy to get into it. So Kurt, why don't you tell us a little bit about Tom and, and then we'll open it up. Yeah, absolutely. So Tom Sporkin joined CFP board in January 2021 as the managing director of enforcement. He leads a team focused on the detection, investigation and prosecution activities of the organization. Prior to joining CFP Board, Tom was a practicing securities attorney with Buckley LLP, providing legal advice to boards, executives, and regulated entities. Before Buckley, Tom spent 20 years in the Division of Enforcement at the Securities and Exchange Commission. He served in various leadership roles at the commission during his tenure, including co-managing the Office of Internet Enforcement and the Office of Market Intelligence. Tom is a proud son of the DMV area with his undergrad degree from the University of Maryland and his JD from American University. And as I mentioned, Tom is an old friend of mine, so it's really, really good to have you on the show. Tom, welcome to Insecurities. 
Well, look, thanks, Kurt and Chris. It's great to be here with you. You've got a great podcast. I've known you guys for a while. I mean, yes, what you said is true. I'm a lifelong DC native. I never left. I was born here, did all my schooling here. And then uh, my career has always been here in DC. So yes, DC is a great place to live. And again, thanks for having me here. One of those rare birds we meet in, inside the Beltway who's who's a lifer, Tom, so always good. Right. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your background, right? Like like Kurt said, we've known you for a while. And, and before we get into the CFP board, you know, you've been a, a practicing attorney and in the enforcement world for decades. And, you know, just want to kind of talk a little bit about the background here, knowing uh, knowing your early life inspiration into the law. So we'd love to hear if you had any major influences uh, as a child thinking about the having a being an attorney as your profession. <laughs> yes, a bit of a loaded question. That's so, right. Yeah, I'm sh- and as you know, and I'm sure you know, many of your listeners can probably figure out with my last name. My uh, late father was Stanley Sporkin, who spent about 20 years at the SEC, serving his last role there was as director of enforcement in the 80s. Then he went on to hold a couple other interesting jobs. He was general counsel of the CIA, and he was a federal judge. And then after all of that, he then decided, you know what, I'm going to be a defense attorney. But, you know, the role that resonated with me the most was his time in the enforcement division at the SEC. And when I was a kid, I used to follow all of the interesting and groundbreaking stuff he was doing at the SEC back then. So I went to law school and set a path for myself that would eventually lead me to the SEC. And just as an aside, I never had any desire at all to be either a general counsel or a judge. Not that there's anything wrong with those two great callings, but what resonated with me was getting the bad guys. And although I had a brief eight and a half year stint representing clients who came under SEC scrutiny, I'm happy to be back again playing offense. That's a great, a great story, a great background. We, we like when we have guests to kind of, you know, chase how their careers have maybe shifted or, or taken, taken different roles over time. So, I mean, I don't know if what you do now is, uh, is, is chasing bad guys, but why don't you tell us a little bit about <laughs> how, how it is that you, you ended up at CFP board and, and what were some of the things that influenced your decision to head over there? Yeah, it's it's an interesting career move, and but but it's it's been great. And let me let me give you a little bit of the backstory. As you know, I've been practicing at Buckley for close to nine years. Again, counseling, defending people and businesses that had come under SEC scrutiny. But I also, when I was there, I, they allowed me to represent whistleblowers, and that was one part of the job I loved because again, it allowed me to work side by side with the SEC and try to root out corporate corruption. So I actually had a great mix of work at Buckley, and I literally could have seen myself growing old and working both sides of the line at Buckley, you know, for, for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. But then I got a call, I got an email from an executive recruiter and he said that CFP board was creating a standalone enforcement department and was looking for someone to build it and run it. And so I, I Googled it, a CFP board and saw a lot of really great stuff. Everything I was reading was driving me to the same conclusion that the CFP credential was highly regarded by financial institutions and consumers, and it was always nicely reflected in the press. Mm-hmm. So that got me a little nostalgic for my time at the SEC. And I built one of the things I did there was I built the Office of Market Intelligence after the Madoff fraud. And you know, for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with the origins of the Office of Market Intelligence. It was to be the central intake point for all tips, complaints, and referrals so that you could never have another you kind of fumble like what happened at the SEC where things came into different offices and they were never put together. 
So anyway, when the, when the CFP board opportunity arose, I thought to myself, I got one more big build left in me. And these jobs don't come around often, you know, and you guys probably remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the last job like this I saw popping up was the PCAOB job 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I decided this was this was the right time. And so I decided to take the plunge and start the process of building another office. That's great. It's definitely a heavy lift. Tom, to jump into the details here, you know, Kurt and I, you know, always love to rely on what we hear in the industry and the CFP credential is kind of described by this moniker of today's Series 7, right? And, and that's a, a, an acknowledgement back to some of the tests that have taken a focus in the finance world in years prior. Is that a fair assessment of how we see the CFP credential and its standing in today's market? Yeah, I feel that it is. For those of us who practiced before FINRA, the SEC, or even state securities commissions, like I know the two of you have, we've always traditionally thought of things as being, the world of professionals as being binary. You've got brokers and you've got advisors. But in the past couple of decades, you've seen the emergence of the third professional, the planner. And as you said, mentioned in your, every time you see one of these financial institutions on TV with a commercial, they always talk about planning. You don't hear about them saying, hey, call your broker at our firm, or they don't even really mention advice that much anymore. The term that they emphasize is planning. So, you know, I remember, I'm a little older than you guys, but I remember back in the day, you'd call your broker on the phone, on, uh, you know, and it was, they'd route you to the floor broker, you tell them what stock you wanted, they'd say, okay, it's currently trading this price, they'd then get you in the stock, and invariably, you know, at least in my experience, the price, he'd say, oh, you know what, we, we, we got you in at a higher price, sorry about that, and then they'd charge <laughs> you some huge commission. So that's, you know, that's like, that's extinct anyway, you know, first of all, you don't really, other than this pay for order flow debate that's going on, which we won't get into, you know, you don't really pay commissions anymore. And you, you basically, if you have a brokerage account, it's on your telephone or on your computer screen, you don't really interact with anybody. And, you know, I think the same thing's true it, to, to a lesser extent with, with just plain advisors. People expect more now from, from you know, a wealth manager or, or a holistic, they really want holistic planning. And so they need someone with broad product knowledge and someone that can help them devise, you know, a holistic strategy to meet all their life events. And, you know, one last thing I'll say on this is that it, that can kind of sum this up. When I talk to young people out there who are in the financial services space, they pretty much acknowledge that if they're going to be providing advice, they need to get for table stakes. They need the CFP yeah. certification. Yeah. So I think really planning is the natural evolution of all of this stuff. I'd agree, Tom. And I think, you know, obviously I'm going to project here, right? I look at it very similarly to how the CPA credential is viewed in the accounting world is, of course, there is advice and, and, and bookkeeping services that can be provided without it, similar to advice you might get in certain areas of wealth management. But that that table stakes, as you described it, is really, really the CFP credential, the same way the CPA credential is from an accounting perspective. And one of the interesting things about the CFP credential is that it's really not just in one band of the financial planning landscape, right? You'll see, you know, small shops, uh, you know, of, of registered investment advisors who have the credential. And then you'll look at some of the mega financial institutions that are in the news all the time. And their entire outfit is is full of CFPs, you know, tens of, Kurt, you said, what, 93,000 credential holders, right? Those really yeah. span the gamut of, of sizes and, and focus. So, Tom, how do you feel that the CFP credential has become that standard in the industry for, for firms, both very large and, and actually very 
very small. Yeah, that's that's a great point. You know, I think we're at, you know the 93. I think we might be at close to 94 now. It's in December, and we may even get to 95 by the end of the year. We'll, we'll update uh, it with the ticker <laughs> at the bottom of the episode, Tom. There you go. Grows. There you go. And you know, one of the and I think that's probably like a third to a quarter of all the advisors out there have the have the credential now. So look, the reason you see it everywhere is because people ask for for certified financial planners when someone walks into truist or you know merrill lynch they ask for a certified financial planner so pretty much all of these financial institutions you know need, need to have certified financial planners in their ranks and you know it's also w- w- one thing that's also true is the certified financial planner knows all of the products at each of these institutions. And then again, they can offer those to the client so that they can have estate planning. They can do insurance, retirement. They can help the client buy a house, put kids through college, tax preparation and tax strategy, and just about anything else you know you can think of in terms of personal financial help. Um, but the, you know, there's another reason why the certification is meeting, and that's because as opposed to just about every other alphabet soup credential in the space. Getting the CFP credential is hard and keeping it in good standing requires continual effort. And here's this is something that's really interesting that I just saw when I when I got to CFP board last year. If you go on FINRA's website, they've attempted to catalog the 200, I think it's 14, maybe it's more now, professional designations that have sprouted up in the financial services space. But when you break them down, and FINRA does a lot of this, you know, they have a lot of the these elements that they that if you wanted to go on there yourself and look at this, you could. And if, and if you go on the website, you tease out only the ones that have well-developed practice standards, ethical requirements, an educational requirement, and a legitimate exam, and then a substantial fieldwork component. You're basically left with our certification, the CFP certification, and then the Chartered Financial Analyst or CFA designation, which is more of a Wall Street type Mm -hmm. credential. But to me, and I'm biased, the biggest differentiator (laughs) that there is for the CFP certification is that we've got a highly evolved enforcement program and that, you know, it's one that you can credibly benchmark against states, FINRA and the SEC. Yeah, it's helpful background, you know, to sort of know who the certificates are and what they do and and why that designation matters. But I think you're sort of hinting at what we want to talk about next, Tom, and that's that's sort of where the enforcement role fits within CFP board. So just, I mean, give us a little bit of a high level organizational structure, if you will. How is CFP board shaped? And then tell us where enforcement fits within that mix. All right, Kurt, good question. So we have several departments at CFP board that are typical across just about every organization. We've got operations, HR, finance. We have a general counsel's office. And then you've got groups that are less generic, like my department, enforcement. But we've also got a group that develops and oversees our exam. We've got a center that focuses on creating a more diverse and sustainable profession. And new this year, we have a managing director of research. So there, there are num- there are a number of functions at CFP board that are both unique and generic. And so, you know, you can kind of get that picture. But with regard to enforcement, typically at an organization that sets professional standards and oversees and administers a certification like ours, you'd find the enforcement function housed in another department. Like, you know, typically you'd expect to find it in the general counsel's office. But 
That's not the case with CFP board. My department reports directly to our CEO. And in addition to that, we have a board committee that monitors the enforcement program. So when you're talking about a standard setting organization elevating its enforcement function to the level that CFP board has, we've got to be one of one when it comes to that. And so when I was thinking about taking this role, that was one of the compelling facts that led me to say, you know, this is these guys get it. And uh, this is something I wanted to do. So I guess now that you're you're setting it up, you know, there are probably some some philosophical or maybe programmatic challenges that that you're encountering. But I mean, tell us I guess sort of generally, how do you approach enforcement at CFP board? I mean, could we think about it like a state regulator or or an SRO like FINRA kind of what what's the role? Well, first of all, let me say that we're not regulators. We can't we can't subpoena documents. We don't have examination or inspection authority, but we do have an ability to get the information and documents that we need from our certificates who have an obligation to cooperate with us in our investigations. And we do have an ability to get financial institutions who, you know, have CFP professionals throughout the ranks. We have we have the ability to get information from them as well. Now, that's taken time to develop to get us to the point where we're at. But as our certification numbers have grown, as we discussed earlier, and as it's become a critical piece of how firms provide their wealth management and finance services, personal finance services, We've been able to develop and enhance our collaborative relationships with the legal and compliance departments at the firms. And so here's here's something that was interesting to me when I got there. The pre- my predecessors at CFP board even obtained two no action letters from the SEC, which essentially say that providing that when a firm provides certain client information to us, it won't trigger a reg sp violation so i'm not sure how many private organizations have specific no action letters but that was pretty neat to see when i got there a few years ago interesting i mean chris on some level it reminds me of the way things are set up over at aicpa and Mm -hmm. you know thinking back to a little bit of the conversation we had with tom hood a few months ago kind of walking that line in terms of what specific powers you yes. have from as an complementary to other, uh, yeah. to other groups. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's it's really it's really interesting. I mean, I guess Tom, you've sort of been responsible as you say it was yours to so you're you're shaping the way that the enforcement unit looks and feels and, and kind of what they do over there at CFP board. I mean, talk to us about how you've done that and how you think about resource allocation and, and you know some of the other things that are shaping the unit. Well, I believe one of the biggest reasons we have such a well-functioning enforcement department today is because our board and our CEO, Kevin Keller, have prioritized enforcement and have provided my department with the resources we need to have such a, 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 a best-in-class enforcement. And it all starts with having the right people. And in my group, we have former SEC and FINRA lawyers, securities defense attorneys. One of, my, one of my guys is a former Manhattan assistant DA. We've got a former chief compliance officer. And at the analyst ranks, we've got, you know, just really smart, hardworking detection analysts and investigation analysts to play primary roles on intake and supporting roles throughout the investigation process. So not only do we have those great people, but now we have a structure 
that is maximizing the opportunities for everyone to do great work in the department. So I can give you a quick overview of how we've structured ourselves. Last year, which was my first year here at CFP Board, we spent the year assessing and studying how we've historically done things. And we came up with two ways to improve, both processes and structure. And at the beginning of this year, we launched with our new structure. And that structure is we have in the enforcement department, we've got two subgroups. We have a front end unit and which does our, which we call our detection unit. And we have an investigations and prosecutions unit, which conducts the investigations and sees all the matters through to resolution. But, but the secret sauce to what we do is our detection group. And one of the interesting aspects about how we approach detection is that what we use what we call automated scraping technology, which is a big fancy way of saying our IT department runs our roster our nine, of 94,000 CFP professionals against a number of publicly available databases, regulatory databases, court-based databases. We, we run it against IAPD and broker check or two of the databases. We use so. In addition to CFP professionals having an affirmative duty to self-report certain things like customer complaints, arrests, tax liens, civil litigation, we also independently sur surveil for those types of events. And not only does our detection group do all of the intake on those events, they also start virtually all of our investigations by sending out our notices of investigations when when we have an issue we're looking into. So just like FINRA having their front end unit and the SEC having its Office of Market Intelligence, we have our detection group. And, you know, it's been great to see that group really evolve over the past year. Tom, it's great to hear about how things are done internally within CFP board. But, you know, Kurt and I are always interested on the podcast of kind of talking about how all of the regulatory and enforcement agencies collaborate or in certain cases do not collaborate on specific elements. You referenced that, you know, FINRA's kind of download of 214 applicable credentials here. But I'm interested in your take on how the CFP board works alongside organizations like the SEC, FINRA, or even state regulators when those opportunities present themselves. Yes. Yeah, so I believe we've developed really good and healthy relationships with FINRA, their, their front end unit, and also, you know, our point of contact at the SEC is the Office of Market Intelligence, mm -hmm. who I still know some of the people back there. So <laughs> that was a good, it was a good and easy way to, to get in there. But we also have got, you know, we've got relationships with people, uh, with folks at the National Association of State Securities Administrators, who I'm sure you know, you know, the same people I do over there. And we have good relationships with many of the, you know, the individual states as well. And it's, it's been a two-way street. Sometimes we'll initiate a discussion with them, and sometimes they'll reach out to us seeking information. And what one of the interesting cases recently that FINRA brought, and it was just a couple of weeks ago, you, you can still Google it. They brought a case against one of their, you know, I guess, Series 7 holders who we caught cheating on our CFP exam. And they sought to, you know, basically their, their version of the revocation against that person. And, and they did, they, they did, they did that. And that case, as I said, generated a good deal of press. You go Google it and you can read all about it. But then similarly, from time to time, we'll bring cases against our certificates where FINRA, you know, might've brought the case first. So we're regularly speaking with others in the space. It's not just FINRA, it's the States. We, we work collaboratively with them and with the SEC. And I think they've given us the latitude on occasion to give us information within within their guidelines but they've you know they've definitely prioritized working with us
So, Tom, you know, you referenced the SEC here, and you know, we're going to hit you with a lot of loaded questions today, as you referenced earlier. How do you feel the CFP board's enforcement department stacks up against that SEC enforcement division? Well, I'll start off by saying that to give you some frame of reference, we're about the size of an SEC assistant director group. We've got 17 full-time staff, about half of which are attorneys, and then the rest are, as I said, analysts. And our office has the feel of what you'd expect in, you know, either a group at enforcement at the SEC or FINRA. I'd say the biggest difference from what we do is that we focus on individual conduct and our special niche is financial is the financial planning process itself. So enforcing our practice standards is one of our most important functions. I don't think you'll see the SEC or FINRA enforcing CFP board's financial planning practice standards. So we really have to make sure that we're doing that. Now, having said that, there is a lot of overlap as well. We will investigate the same types of things. We'll rep, we'll investigate allegations of suitability issues, of interest, disclosure issues. And we also have, similar to FINRA, a catch-all category, and so which, which gives us flexibility to bring cases against someone who engages in conduct that is unbecoming of a professional. We call it, and in, in our our specific provision, you know, states words to the effect of conduct that reflects adversely on our marks. And just like FINRA, and with their catch-all, a large a large portion of our cases include that charge. All right. So you've told us a little bit about you know how how you gather or how your department gathers information, cooperates with some other agencies out there, and the the types of conduct that you're looking at. But let's get a little bit in the weeds here. You know, if you're if you're an individual who is caught up in a CFP board investigation, kind of what what does that look like? Talk to us a little bit about how you you sort of execute on your mission within the the enforcement department. Yeah. So. At the highest level, Kurt, it's a balancing act. We want to be fair to our certificates, but we also need to have a credible enforcement program that provides confidence to the public. So the way we're fair to certificates is by having an extensive set of procedural rules that govern how we conduct our investigations and how we adjudicate matters. And each of those processes are replete with due process considerations. Once my department decides that we have a matter that we believe is appropriate for prosecution, we file a case and that matter is heard by what we call our disciplinary and ethics commission, which is the review board that hears our cases. And the deck, as we call it for short, is comprised of both CFP practitioners and non-CFP public members. And here, here's an interesting factoid um, that can kind of put in perspective how we think about due process. My department sits on a separate floor from everyone else at CFP board. So we're actually physically insulated from just about everyone else at CFP board. So any people should have confidence that we take due process seriously. I wonder if there's a chill in the building when they hear the elevator go, Tom, right? <laughs> oh, no, they're coming down from, from upstairs. Who that's knows right. what could happen? That's right. Oh, that's great. All right. So, Tom, we want to, you know, we want to give you your uh, beer gray wall moment here if you want to take it. Obviously, some of those investigations, as you've mentioned, do lead to disciplinary action. And, and I would imagine that those kinds of actions can have a deterrent effect. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the more impactful actions or cases that have come through the department since you've been there? 
So as I stated earlier, we'll investigate and prosecute matters that center on suitability, conflicts of interest, fiduciary duty, as well as matters that are specific to our practice standards and some of our other unique provisions. And one thing that's neat about what we do, and I'm not sure this is the same about every other private standard setting organization that has an enforcement arm, all of our public sanctions are described in disciplinary releases that anyone can access on our website. So let me just give you a brief taste of a few of our recent actions. This was one that got a little bit of press recently. We obtained a full revocation against an individual who violated our professionalism standard. So this is a this was a person who was downright cruel to a prospective client when she had mm-hmm. trouble faxing cer- certain documents and simply wanted to meet him at his office to hand deliver the documents. Well, believe it or not, that triggered some you know, really bad insults and really mm-hmm. bad behavior, which you can read about on our website or it's been picked up in a bunch of different articles. So we have this provision that requires all CFP professionals at all times to treat all persons with dignity, courtesy, and respect. And I think that's that's got to be unique because I'm not aware of another another provision like that. So I'm sure, Kurt, uh, all of your clients treat you with <laughs> dignity and respect, right? Well, that's certainly what they get from me. Chris, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not a two-way street. Sorry, you Tom. Know th- well, you know, in, in when we had this case, I looked up the bar rules to that point. And, you know, there is some, you got to go into like the notes to find something that says people should always be respectful, but there's nothing over it like this. Yeah, no, no, don't be a jerk requirement. Uh, yeah, there's no don't be explicit. a jerk requirement. Exactly. So anyway, he got revoked for, you know, for his actions. And again, it got a lot of, it, it generated a lot of debate. Another matter in that same disciplinary release, we announced a case in which an advisor failed to manage when he was representing both a husband and a wife who were going through a divorce. He continued to give one client information about the other client after it was clear that they were getting divorced. And in the, yeah, that's a, that's a no, no. So that was a, that was a, another matter. We recently sanctioned people for engaging in conduct that violated FINRA and SEC rules. We've had accommodation forgery cases, selling away from a firm case, a failing to disclose 12B1 fees is another case we brought. And we've got other matters like that, that we're still investigating. And then we have these, you know, kind of cases that we're always bringing, you know, the same type of case. It just, it's just the nature of what we do. We've obtained sanctions against certificates who demonstrate they can't manage their own finances. And that's evidenced by tax liens and bankruptcies. So that's that's uh, something that we, we want to make sure that the RCFP professionals meet meet that those standards. So our cases really run the gamut, but a lot of times um, they're, they're, they're challenging. And it's important to note that all of our cases are against individuals. So we don't have the luxury like, like others do of being able to settle matters against entities and then put out a press release and then close the investigation. You know, people that get the CFP certification want to keep the cert- the CFP certification. And the last thing they want is a public disciplinary action where that everybody can go look up. So people fight hard for to keep this and and we and we welcome that. We we don't want to get things wrong. We want to get things right. And so that's again one of the reasons why we we insist on having all of these due process elements in what we do. You know, so Tom, it's interesting hearing a little bit about some of the cases that have come through the CFP board. I guess just taking a step back what what is the range of sanctions that are available to your department? You know, I, I, it sounds like maybe suspensions or or maybe even a some kind of bar. I mean, can you do monetary sanctions? What what are we talking about in terms of punishment? 
So the we can't get monetary sanctions. We can assess an administrative fee for people who don't report certain things to us. We have that that capability, but we can't get monetary sanctions as you would think of them in the typical way. We can get private censures. We can get public censures. We can get revocations and bars. One of the other things that we do is we will sometimes when we don't feel we have a case that's that is appropriate for bringing bringing a case bringing to the disciplinary and ethics commission sometimes we'll end that case with a cautionary letter and that cautionary letter isn't public it's something we do on our own at the staff level but we can use it down the road if that certificate engages in similar conduct and we do bring a case mm-hmm. we bring you know at any given time we've got you know in in excess of 500 open matters and we'll close in excess of 500 matters each year probably the majority of those will get closed with a cautionary letter Hmm. we'll bring probably a hunt this year we'll probably bring 150 actual actions so hopefully that gives you some context to kind of the 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 pace that we that we go at and the types of sanctions that we have tom you talked a little bit about the outcomes and how there's the private censure version and the public censure version. And, and I'd agree, you know, you noted that this is people fight hard for this, right? This is their livelihood. And if this certification is, is taken away or, or something is misunderstood there, they can have a real impact on individuals. So I get that from them. But sometimes the public nature of a censure actually comes before CFP board even gets involved. And I'm referencing a case I remember from about a year ago now, where an individual who held the CFP credential was actually seen on an internet video, you know, mistreating a a food service worker. And actually, and I'm going to say this sentence on the podcast, Kurt, this will be new for the bingo, threw a (laughs) smoothie at the individual. And this is something that made national news, you know, you know, was covered by a lot of media outlets out there. So Tom, talk to us a little bit about that case and and kind of how that came to you all and, and where we're standing today. Yeah, sure. So we have an emergency provision, which allows us to seek an interim suspension on an expedited basis when we see someone engaging in conduct that we believe is causing harm to the CFP marks. And so, yeah, in that particular case, that the CFP professional was getting a smoothie for himself and his son. And my understanding is that he was under the impression that the smoothie he was buying for his son wouldn't trigger his son's nut allergy. And in any event, it did. And he went back into the smoothie shop to express his displeasure. Um, unbeknownst to him, or maybe beknownst to him, someone was filming it. He, he you know, he, um, as anybody who had a social media feed about a year ago saw, yeah. <laughs> he started the tirade, which involved epithets and cursing at the teenage smoothie shop worker and actually throwing, as you said, Chris, actually throwing the smoothie across the counter at the person. And that video, you know, was seen by, you know, it went viral. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I I remember that, I think that either happened on a Friday or a Saturday. And I remember that Sunday night and Monday, well, because, you know, I was getting inquiries from just about everybody asking, what are we doing about this? So luckily, our detection team got that lead in real time over the weekend and was ready to file the interim suspension papers on Monday. And so that matter, we obtained the interim suspension, and I believe we did so in, as my memory serves me, something like 11 days, which wow. I believe to this date is the fastest we've ever brought yeah. you know, a case from the date of the, the, the time of the event 
to actually obtaining the relief that we sought. Yeah. And I mean, I, my understanding of the case, too, is that the individual admitted that they, he was in the wrong and apologized. But, you know, that like you said, that conduct detrimental to the marks was already done. Right. And, and I think that 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 notes the speed with which the case was brought and that suspension was was levied out. Yeah. Yeah. It was an unfortunate situation, but one that we you know, we had to act fast on. Tom, you know, it's been almost two years now, your two-year anniversary. I'm sure you've got a huge party planned over on, on your special floor at CFP Board. Interested in, in where, where we're going next, right? Your, your two years in development here, and, and obviously the CFP credential continues to be important to the market and, and the work that you all, all do, you know, 500 matters a year. What's next for, for the Division of Enforcement at CFP Board? So, look, we, we, I think we've got the 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 office up and running now it's running well it's it's efficient it's effective to me i'm i'm entering my third year in january my big focus next year is on an an outside audit of our department we've Mm. spent again the first year was doing an assessment year two was you know building out our policies and procedures and next year we're getting an external group of experts to come in and assess where we are. And so to me, that's my focus. Mm. In, in addition to, you know, day-to-day management of our caseload. But it's it's year three of our three-year build. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. We look we look forward to getting better uh, every, every, you know, month, every week, every month. And by the end of next year, we should be a finished product. That's great to hear. It's great. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us on Insecurities and and sharing a little bit more about what the CFP board is, does, and and how those standards are enforced. Well, look, thank you both for having me here. It's been a pleasure, and I I really enjoyed, uh, you know, kicking it around with the two of you. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Tom Sporkin of CFP Board. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. 
These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.